Tyler. Tyler, how you doing? Good. Good. Hey. I mean, I can hear you. All right. I can hear you. This is good. So welcome to the tent. So thank you. Thanks this for having is, me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. This is uh, everybody. Uh, this is Tyler Wells. Tyler is known on Instagram and probably most of the forums as Inland Reef. And this is kind of fun for me. Uh, it's Tyler, as you know, my background, you know, is reefing. Before I really got into the botanical thing and kind of jumped to that, I was a reefer, hardcore reefer, and still am. And as I'm getting back into my new reef tank, it's kind of fun to talk to some people that, that are doing it and been doing it for a while. And Tyler and I have a common interest in mangroves, which is something that a lot of our community is into. And uh, Tyler, it's really going to be fun to fun to talk to you today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be a blast. Uh, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. So, I, you know, with without getting too cliche, if you can give me like the, the, the two minute origin story of you and the hobby, like what what's your uh, what's your your jam? I mean, I know you, you've been a reefer for a while, but um, how'd you start? Ooh, OK. So let's see. Um, I mean, quick start. I, of course, started in the freshwater side, as most people do. My parents got me a betta fish um, uh, called Bluey. Uh, you could probably guess the color. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say it wasn't red. (laughs) No, it wasn't red. Um, and so my, my dad had fish tanks. Um, and you know, I grew up fishing a lot, um, from the Midwest area of the United States. And so did a lot of fishing and just loved, um, loved that aspect of, about it. So I started keeping fish tanks myself. Um, ultimately went off to college, got my degree in, uh, zoology, Mm -hmm. um, actually specializing in ornithology. So study of birds, but I did a lot of work with, um, fisheries and things like that. Um, so it kind of re-sparked my interest in, in, in keeping aquariums again. And then when I uh, graduated from college, I thought, you know, hey, I now have a career. I have the funds. Let's, let's really dive into this uh, saltwater side and, and started the whole aspect of, of reef keeping. Um, picked up a, a small all-in-one tank, sort of caught the bug. And then from there, I just started um, evolving and, and learning about mangroves and macroalgae and then just really just took off from there. So that's, yeah, kind of my little, Super little cool. spiel. I like yeah. it. Now, you know, what's interesting too, with your background in zoology, um, I, I find it interesting because as you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with ecology in general and just like how natural systems come together and, and, and habitats and so forth. So it's kind of cool that you have that background and I, and I would imagine studying birds and and later on fishes it probably taught you to look at the entire ecosystem a little differently i would imagine that kind of is sort of was one of your entrees into reef keeping is that you kind of took a different approach yeah i'd say so i mean uh, i took a lot of ecology courses and i've worked for a lot of like um forest preserve uh forest park districts um the national park service so i've done a lot of things that involve a lot of ecology and looking at a holistic sort of um, ecosystem and what's beneficial, what's invasive, what's not supposed to be there. How do we adapt, change, um, or live with what's currently, currently there. So yeah, Yeah. definitely, definitely has sort of curbed my, um, my thoughts and sort of um, actions towards what I do with my reef keeping or just aquarium keeping in general. Right. Right. It's, it's amazing how it does it. Now, mangroves, which is something we share both a mutual love of. Uh, I'm, you've actually given me some tips on mangroves uh, and they've been, they've been helpful. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about mangroves today. Um, I want to talk about your aquarium that 
if you feature on Instagram quite a bit. And if anybody hasn't seen it, please do go check out Inland Reef uh, on Instagram and check out um, Tyler's amazing aquariums. Or actually, you know, you've got a you've got a couple of little setups there, right? But you've got that one in particular, the forty two gallon tank that's mm-hmm. pretty well known to a lot of people on Instagram and in uh, forums like Reef to Reef, where you were the you were the tank of the month. I think was it last May. Something yeah, it's like past that. May. Yep. Yeah. And that's a pretty big honor for those of you that aren't familiar with the reef keeping world. Um, that's a big deal. There's a lot of talented reefers out there. And it's not just one of those like, hey, you know, uh, here's a nice tank. It's it's kind of unique. And what's really unique about this is your tank is definitely not the flavor of the month in terms of reef keeping or, or saltwater aquariums for that matter. Um, no, no doing, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you're doing an entire ecosystem. You're doing things that are currently... I don't want to say out of favor, but not super popular in, in the reef keeping side of the hobby. Deep sand beds, mangroves, diverse ecology. Um, that's so cool. Now, now you did this, what, because you like it, right? That's your thing. Is it like you're into the mangroves and the systems? Or is it like you just wanted to do something different? Or what, what kind of was the impetus to setting up a mangrove thing? So I... I think I was, I mean, I live in a landlocked state. I am the farthest away from an ocean that you can possibly be. Right. So my thought was, you know, I love snorkeling. I love being like, you know, just being able to go around and do tide pooling and stuff like that. So for me, my thoughts of a saltwater tank is what I see when I walk out on the beach and, and be able to go swim around and and explore there. So right. I tried to take essentially a chunk of the ocean and just bring it into my apartment here. Mm-hmm. And also, I really like mangroves. I mean, there's right, they're just, they're just so cool. I mean, they are the, the ability to be fresh, brackish, and full salt water is just an incredible adaptation for a plant to be able to do that. So it really is. And and the the thing I love about your tank, particularly your mangrove tank, and well, we'll talk about a lot of things, but that mangrove tank is that it's not a huge aquarium. It's a, it's a 40, it's 42 gallons, right? It's like 40 inches long or something like that. 39 yeah, inches long. Yeah. 39 inches long, 16 tall, 16 wide. Um, yeah. It's, it's about 42 gallons or so. I can't remember what the liters are, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a basic tank. I think it looks bigger on camera, but it's, it's not, it's not as big as people think. Yeah. And it, but what's nice about that size tank, it's very achievable for a lot of hobbyists that really are into it. We get questions every day about mangroves. People are really into them. And I think what's so cool is you've, you've been doing it for a while and you haven't been just doing the mangrove. You've been, you've been doing um, other organisms that live in the mangroves. Like you've been doing what soft corals, microalgaes, gorgonians, stuff like that. What, what is your favorite sort of, I don't know, companion animal to the mangroves? Oh, that is a that Tough is a one, right? really hard thing. Um, oof. Well, it depends on which ecosystem you're trying to, I guess, go after. So, I have two, technically two, forty-two gallons. They're actually the same, same style, same tank, same everything. One mm-hmm. has a sump, one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, in the one that you see the massive mangroves on, it originally started off as like a Caribbean style. So mm-hmm. I would say the best pairing for that one would be the Gorgonians because I think there's just something cool about if you're ever in the Caribbean, you have the mangroves lining, you know, the Caribbean coast, and then you just have seas of Gorgonians. Now my other one, I'm sort of trying to emulate more of like Indonesia, mm-hmm. like that Indo-Pacific area. Yeah. And for me, my like Holy grail of, you know, if you want to even call Holy grail of things, 
Um, very much a reefer term. <laughs> Absolutely a reefer term. I have three um, yellow toadstools. Now, I'm not sure if they're like a Fiji. I'm not exactly sure where they're right. from. They came in on a shipment from Jakarta, Indonesia. So um, for me, I was like, this is perfect. I've always wanted a yellow toadstool. Oh, yeah. They were super common that back in the day. To be, right. That used to be the Sarcophyton. I think it was Elegans or maybe a different yep, species. Sarcophyton so, Elegans. But that was back in the early 2000s. We're sounding like a bunch of old guys. But back in the early 2000s, that was like the most common coral. And they were bright, bright banana yellow. Mm-hmm. And boy, they're hard to come by now. And when you, when you get them now, they're really expensive and they're not all that, they're like mustardy. And that, that's how, so you got those and yep. how are they, how are they holding up for you? Color wise? Are you keeping uh, them yeah, mustardy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. <laughs> there, it depends under, cause my, my apartment has massive windows. They're like mm-hmm. 10 or 12 foot tall windows. Um, it's, it's the great thing about living in a loft apartment. Oh and, yeah. One of my favorite times of day is when the sun rises, I get that northeast sort of early light. And mm-hmm. when that light hits those toadstools, those sarcophytons, man, it, you can see it's that hot. true yellow. But when underneath like the actual lighting that I have, it, it, it just it turns into that sort of mustardy yellow. So it, there's a period of time right to see it. It's it's hard because I, I remember uh, talking many, many times Jake Adams uh, and I were big Toadstool mushrooms. Why am I going crazy? Toadstool corals, whatever you call them. And now I forgot what I call them. Toadstool. I just call them yellow leathers. But we were big fans of those. And and I remember he was saying, "I can never get the things to stay yellow." And I, I'm like, I can't either. And we were like thinking, "Well, is it something in the collection process? Is it something the way we light things nowadays? Is it the sourcing? Is the ocean water different now? You know, I wonder what it. Never sort of figured that out, unfortunately. But. There was a weird study, actually, um, Mark Vanderbilt, the um, he, you know, the co-host of, of Re-Therapy, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, previously with Jake Adams. Um, right. And so um, he was doing some studies that he was reading and some scientific articles that it could potentially be our lighting, that our lighting is more tuned in a sense towards like that bluer, bluer yeah. side of things. Yeah. Whereas to really contrast and bring out that yellowness you, you almost have to turn the greens up a little bit so i've been slowly experimenting with my kessels to slowly mm-hmm. um essentially increase that green spectrum um hopefully hopefully we'll see i mean i, I have nothing of uh you know note yet it's going to definitely be a more of a long-term process but uh yeah i'm hoping maybe at the year mark maybe i'll see i guess visually a little bit more yellow hard to sort of um document that <laughs> that'll no that'll that'll be interesting now um what light you're using kessel which one are you using the, AP, the ap and nine x yep. okay that's a great light that's a really great light um you you tend to run in a little more daylight spectrum would you say than most yeah, people do? I'm, I'm running that light as white as you possibly can, can yeah or more full spectrum as you possibly can get so it's i would say it's sitting near the twelve thousand kelvin which, um, which, which is funny that we call that white because back in, well, I sound, again, I sound old, but back in the earlier days of reefing, like 12K was considered so blue. I mean, yeah. even 10K was like, oh, it's blue. But you look at it now compared to the typical reefer's uh, aquarium, that, it, you know, which is Windex blue. The thing is just white and yellow and you're like, whoa. Um, but you're right. The you, coral colors are better too. I used to run actually on the, uh, the big mangrove tank. I used to run a twin star on it so that was like oh. 6300 kelvin i mean uh-huh. that was 
daylight. very much daylight. Yep. Right. And so I had that light over my, my essential reef tank um, for the better part of two, two and a half years. I mean, Probably grew, got good color. Yeah. Grew coral like crazy, grew macroalgae like crazy, I, grew my mangroves like crazy. I mean, I love it. I have a twin star over my, uh, my black water tank right now. It's like, and I just have it kind of turned down because it's more for aesthetics than anything else. It's a great, it's a great little light. I mean, yeah. it, it can grow a lot of stuff. Um, you know, and, and we're seeing a sort of a resurgence that you've been kind of leading in terms of more ecologically diverse um, saltwater aquariums. I don't want to necessarily say reef aquarium because that's kind of a catch-all. Sure. Um, but, and, and you're still, you're running macroalgae. You're doing, you know, discosoma. You're doing recordia, all those kind of corals and things that go with that type of shallow, diverse shallow water ecosystem. Do you have, if you were telling somebody, if somebody had said, how do I start a tank like yours? Is there one or two recommendations you could make? And I know that's like a bajillion recommendations you can make when somebody's starting a, a saltwater or reef tank. Is there one thing you could say like, hey, this is a, re- you know, this is a direction you should go in? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, well, I would say personally, so before I even got into like keeping saltwater tanks while I was in college, didn't have mm-hmm. the funds for it, didn't have the time for it. Um, I spent a lot of time researching, reading, learning, um, understanding the concepts. Now, the nitrogen cycle, very similar in, in sense to the freshwater cycle. So you yep. can kind of take a lot of maybe some of that preliminary knowledge you, you might have from the freshwater side, if you know you had done that um, and, and sort of transitioned it to the saltwater side. But I think in the sense of sort of um, my thought is do as much research as you can. And, and be able to sort of plan out what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, for me, of course, reef tanks or saltwater tanks, um, or really any tank in general, is always evolving, always changing. It's, it's an yep. ever-growing system. But I initially, before I set up any system, I always will draw out sort of what my end goal is. So kind of positioning things like where the mangroves are going to go, where rocks mm-hmm. will be, maybe where certain corals that I'm interested in growing. And of course, a lot of that, you know, uh, patterns of growth may come with time as you uh, uh, sort of progress in the hobby. But a lot of that information is out there. I mean, you do have forums and I'm very cautious of like, say, (laughs) projecting someone or pushing someone to a forum. Right. um, Because sometimes information can be both good and bad or just be overwhelming. Exactly. I think the one thing I would say if, if I was starting over brand new from scratch, didn't really have much knowledge, I would go and find someone who has a tank or a system or a setup that I thoroughly enjoy and was like, you know what, if, if that was going to be what I could create, um, I would want it to emulate that. And I would go and, and start a conversation, create you know a good friendship or a partnership or something with this individual and, 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 sort of have, uh, I guess, maybe a mentorship to, yeah. to grow into that and learn how they are successful, right? There's a thousand ways to be successful in, in not only a freshwater tank, but also a saltwater tank. Um, and I think it's setting your expectations of what you want out of it and then being able to find someone who has either achieved or or maybe um, has been successful in, in what you're trying to get out of it and, and, and um, and learn from them. I think that would be my, my one. Fantastic advice. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, a lot of the information about the animals, um, 
is relatively out there. I mean, of course, obscure ones, if you start to get into some, you know, um, not as common, um, maybe say corals or invertebrates or uh, fish, that information might not be there, but you can also use things like Google Scholar. Uh, there might exactly. be some articles, um, scientific articles that, you know, um, scientists may have written about it, but a majority of like the bread and butter, fish, coral, things like that, um, you can probably get your information from the individual at the local fish store or even multiple um, reputable stores, I, I would say, online. I mean, I've used your former company a couple times to <laughs> uh, look up um, quite a few things to sort of learn about maybe where that region is from, sort of its care requirements and things like that. Um, yeah. So. Well, I think that's important. And I like that you recommended, as you know, I'm a big fan of like, don't just stick with the, the fish, the aquarium world, social media for your information. There's plenty of good information out there. There's a lot of talented people. But when you mentioned Google Scholar, that's like one of my favorite resources. I found so many ideas in both reef keeping and in the freshwater stuff that I've been able to utilize to create really interesting aquariums or, you know, play a hunch here or there. Um, I think we tend as hobbyists to, to, to aggregate to like where the, you know, where the other hobbyists are. And sometimes people have been afraid to kind of go out into the, to the deep end of the pool and look at the scholarly research and figure out how to interpret that. And it's refreshing that you're mentioning that as a, as a recommendation for people to do, because I can't recommend that enough. That's, that's some awesome advice. Sure. And, and I think really, to be honest, a goal of mine um, was always to sort of, um, of course, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted to embark on, you know, a hobby that of course spends extra money that I probably didn't have. <laughs> like it's going and, out of style. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so my thought was, what was, what, what are ways in which I can convert from say the freshwater side to the saltwater side with minimal amount of expense added, mm -hmm. um, minus like livestock and things like that, but just equipment wise. And so that was kind of where I started my experiment by using the twin star and mm -hmm. my main system, actually the one with the big mangroves is completely simplest. It's in a sense, you would say filterless, right? Um, yes. Now, now I guess it, it does have a, a hang on back filter there, but that's literally only to run carbon. It's my, it's my poor man's carbon reactor. But, 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 um, you know, but, but that's, what's so cool is like the, when you really think about it, even in a, in a, in an average reef tank, it, other than the, the ancillary support equipment we use, protein skimmers, the, maybe reactors, dosers or whatever, it's basically just a sump, a box of water at the, beneath mm -hmm. it. And it's that, you know, circulates the water as the water volume, whatever. It, but a system like yours, it takes it, it, it in terms of somebody coming over from freshwater to play with brackish or in this case, saltwater. It's a great step because it's ecologically diverse. It relies on, um, you know, substrate and in this case, plants and macroalgae and a whole host of life forms, which is something that is kind of familiar to most freshwater people. It actually seems to me like an aquarium like yours would be a great intro into the saltwater world. Yeah, and, I would and, say so too. Uh, I mean, the majority a, of the equipment that I'm using, you probably have laying around, um, yeah. whether it's an extra tank that you haven't set up a tank yet, or it might be a system you've already set up. Most yeah. likely, um, you you have the necessary means. I mean, my little tiny ten gallon bowl um, aquarium that has my purple reef lobster in it is being run by a canister filter. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, you can use 
you know, interchangeably between a, a saltwater and a freshwater tank. And, and that's what's so amazing. I think one of the great misnomers of, of saltwater or reef aquarium keeping is that it has to be expensive, filled with all this high-tech gear, when the reality is, if you're doing what you're doing, which is to try to cultivate an, an ecologically diverse, sort of balanced ecosystem, you don't need all the high-tech gadgets. You can use those to do some things, which I know you do. You have a few fancy gadgets, but mm-hmm. you're 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 creating an environment for your ecology first, and then technology second, which is kind of my approach to freshwater, which is really kind of brings me for a full circle because I'm going back into reef keeping a little differently for the first time in in quite a few years, setting up a brand new reef tank, and I'm like looking at this and I'm going, I have so much tech on this tank, not a lot, but more than I've really ever had in the past. And I'm like, it's, it almost sometimes seems like it's not as fun as just the sort of winging it, you know, like we do with the, the freshwater stuff where, you know, you create the ecosystem here. It's like, Oh, try to keep this pest out. Don't let, don't have a deep sand bed. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, all the things I used to do. And I'm like, hmm, I'm doing it a little differently right now. So it's kind of a fun foil to the freshwater stuff, but what you're painting a picture of is you can take that same theme and carry it into saltwater. And I love that. You yeah, don't no, have to do it the high tech way. You don't. And that's the thing is like, I have run these tanks successfully for the last three years. Yep. It's only recently that I've started traveling quite a bit for work. And so I've let, I've, I've looked to a controller to allow me to sort of keep tabs on the tanks while I'm away for long durations of time. Mm-hmm. It, it allows me to not have to worry too much about say paying someone to come and monitor the tank when I can also just open my phone up and monitor it myself. Right. Is it necessary to run this system? Absolutely not. No. But it can be beneficial in situations. And going to like what you're saying, a lot of people are, are using that tech to sort of set up their tank when in real honesty, I think you should really set up a tank and learn the biology and learn the, the aspects of, of running a reef tank prior to using that technology use 100%. the technology to help you not sort of hinder you in, in a sense of of the of setting Ab- up the system absolutely because i know plenty of guys and I've, you've heard me probably rail on this before but I, I know plenty of guys that have spent five digits on their reef aquariums and they're the crappiest aquariums i've ever seen they just have every gadget known to man but if you don't have the fundamentals down like you could buy a ferrari if you can afford it but if you can't drive uh you know your Ford Mustang well, you're not going to be able to drive a Ferrari well, or, or that's probably a bad analogy, but, but you know what I mean? It's like all the mm-hmm. technology is not going to make up for your lack of understanding of how an ecosystem works and the skill. And I think what I love is that you're again saying, Hey, we've got to learn the technique and the art, because I think that's been kind of lost recently in the world of reef keeping. It's coming back, but I think so much emphasis was placed on grabbing the new technology and relying on technology and just getting to collecting corals as opposed to understanding what you're doing. And I, I think it's nice to see a system like yours that uses technology, but the idea is a concept and, and fostering the ecology first. I, I love that. Yeah, and I have a rule. I have no, no frag racks. Absolutely no, no frag don't racks. ever want to see a frag. Yes, no frag. Yeah, I know you're, I, you're not into that at all. Neither am I. I do I not them. like seeing. To me, <laughs> that is the collectoritis of, yes. of the reef keeping hobby that I think... Um, I, I wish that, you know, wouldn't be such a thing, but I, I get it. I get why people are enticed yeah. by it. I see, I see the aspects. I've been to multiple, you know, hobbyist shows and I, I see all the hype behind it. But to yeah. me, the display is a display. I wanted to, to, to represent what, what should be there. And so I, I would rather have a few corals that grow large and really fill in a space than have 
500 corals that are fighting every 10 minutes Amen. that I have to deal with. And Amen. so, yeah. No, I, I love that mindset because it, it's funny. I think that's what led me out of, well, out of, but that's what kind of got me a little burnt on the reef scene for a while and back into the freshwater world was the, you know, especially working in the, in the, in the commercial side of it, it was just so much emphasis on collecting stuff and gadgetry and trying to one up everybody with your expensive coral and less emphasis was placed on creating an ecosystem or managing an aquarium. And it was so refreshing to go back into this botanical stuff and really practice what I grew up doing, which was running aquariums, not, you know, managing equipment. And I, I, I think that that's, it's nice to see aquariums like yours. I don't want to say having a moment, but, but, but actually getting the attention they deserve. You've been doing this a long time and it's, there you are, Tyler. <laughs> are you there? Hello. Hey, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, uh, no worries. The joy is happening. You know, sometimes we have. Uh, this is you're not the first guest I've had this happen to. It happens a lot, unfortunately. Okay. This platform's great. It just doesn't always work well when you're doing collaborations. So maybe we'll have to migrate off this platform at some point. But um, let's try to stay with it as long as we can. The sorry, okay. everybody, that there's the choppiness on this. So we're talking about mangroves. Um, if someone wanted to start a mangrove tank, what would you recommend? Equipment, um, technique, approach, what mangrove would you use, um, et cetera? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think when you're going to set up a mangrove tank, you almost have to um, think about the mangroves care first and then everything else that's going to go in the tank second mm -hmm. um, because they are trees. They do grow. Um, and they will probably outgrow your tank at some point. Um, so for me, when I look at what I should do first, I look at what's going to be in the substrate itself, um, because that's where the roots will eventually go down into. And of course, um, acquire a lot of the nutrients that are necessary for the tree to grow healthy. Um, I've used products like um, Two Little Fishies um, Refugite. Mm -hmm. I've used some of your product the mangle mm -hmm. um i've used um, miracle mud or mineral mud um and a lot of times what i'll do is that that'll be inside of like a acrylic box or like a small container and then i'll cap it with sand you know whatever sort of aesthetically pleasing sand that you like and the reason is that sort of keeps those nutrients inside um this the sediment area right it doesn't leach right. out as much into the water column then from there when it comes to like picking a mangrove, uh, the red mangroves are probably the most common and easiest to find. You can probably find them at any of your local fish stores. Um, but for me, what I look for is actually a mangrove that has no leaves yep. and no roots. And the reasoning behind that, um, especially when it comes into the saltwater side, um, mangroves, red mangroves specifically use a pressure system to sort of excrete the salt from their trunks. I know there's a common misconception that goes around that they actually excrete the salt from their leaves. Um, I have been growing my mangroves for many years um, and I rarely spray the leaves at all. There's not salt creep. I actually have a black mangrove um, that I'm now starting to grow that does excrete salt from its leaves and you can clearly see the salt crystals growing mm -hmm. in the leaves. I do actually have to clean that one. Um, so the reason I, I, I try to find one without roots, it allows me to um, position the mangrove so that way I can actually instigate the prop root growth to grow into that, that substrate layer that I've created. Um, 
that's important because that's something that drives me crazy to see people take the propagal and shove it into the sand. Can you talk a little bit more about that that technique to get people to yeah, understand what you're talking sure. about? Well, and to go off of what you said, by shoving that propagule, especially in a saltwater tank, into the sand bed, you risk the aspect of actually breaking the roots. Yep. And by breaking the roots, you open up what I call like a, like a faucet, right? If you close the faucet, nothing comes out. But if you break the roots and you open the faucet, anything and everything can come in and come out, right? And so essentially the water path just gets inundates the, the mangrove tree with so much salt that they cannot actually expel that salt out of their, their trunk or the, the tree itself, and they essentially get salt stress. Um, and typically that's what I see, especially when people message me or send pictures and they're like, why the heck is my mangrove looking bad? 99% of the time, your roots are probably broken because you, you jammed it into the sand bed. Right. So what I do is I take an clear acrylic rod and I will actually use some fishing line and I'll tie it to that clear rod where the base of the mangrove is actually elevated out of the sand bed. And I'll stick that clear acrylic rod into the substrate layer. And what that does, is it sort of instigates the roots to grow down, right? Because now the mangrove itself is not stable. And in the wild, the reason why they put up these prop roots is so that they can stabilize themselves. You won't get the great canopy with leaves up up top if you don't have a strong root structure below. Right. And I think people are so caught up with, you know, enamored with the leaves and the branches, they forget that the real charm to me of the mangrove is those prop roots. And if you're not doing what you need to do to facilitate the growth of the prop roots, you're, first of all, as you mentioned, you're not going to have a healthy mangrove and you're not going to see those roots, which is the, the, the whole game. That's part. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's like uh, it, what you're preaching also involves patience <laughs> and it's not it's mm -hmm. the easiest thing for a lot of people to do. And unfortunately, again, patience is one of those things that some people they just want the result. I want the plant, you know, they don't understand the fact that they put down these prop roots. It, it, you know, has to do that to be a healthy plant. How long would you say it takes to establish a, a, a root system if you had to generalize? A root system. Oh, that's cool. Um, so in your experience, say, anyway, in yeah. my experience, I would say really it would have to be about a year, I would mm -hmm. say, to get a really good root system, not um, um, the little spindly sort of um, fibrous roots that you'll see initially. A lot of times you'll see like the if you've ever grown a plant in, say, like a, a container of water. Um, right. like an aeroid or something like that you get those like filter roots you'll start to see some of those initially um, as the tree is sort of reaching out and finding um, you know where it needs to go to uh, insert those roots into the, the substrate layer um, but to be honest I would say I, I probably about a year I would I would have to say to get a really good base um, root structure a year um, you can kind of instigate a little bit of um, increased growth if you use flow around it so like i actually have um, a couple wave makers that are directly behind some of my big mangroves and i did it on purpose one because i like the way it looks with the peninsula tank but two the added waves constantly is hitting that um, acrylic rod with the with the mangrove on it and it's kind of causing it the same um, sort of process that you would see in the wild it's, it's initiating that oh I'm moving too much. I need to place down roots and be able to sort of steady myself so I don't just float out to sea or disappear right. somewhere. Right. And so by, by really hitting it with that flow, 
you can get some solid size prop roots pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking like finger size prop roots fairly quickly. So you're saying um, flow from like a like a, a pump, like an like a either a pump return or like a, a vortex yep. or something like that. Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, or if your point. canister filter can uh, is pushing out enough flow, even directing a canister filter output directly near or at that um, mangrove um, that's on the on, on the um, the clear acrylic rod. Right. What a that great right there is just like a, just a great great suggestion two two real actually really great suggestions because uh i think part of the fascination that people like is it's the whole thing they like seeing the branches and the leaves but they also like seeing the 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 roots and i think people don't give it a chance to establish the other thing that i love um about mangroves is i like when the leaves drop i mean you don't want leaves dropping in in a lot but i like when uh, in, in a in a quantity but when they drop into the to the water and fall to the substrate um mm-hmm. Because that sort of nourishes an ecosystem. You want to talk more about that? What's your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Yeah. So in certain systems, I allow the leaves to sort of drop into the water column. Um, in my one system that I'm sort of initiated or instigating or sort of mimicking, you know, like the um, Indonesia region, I let the leaves drop in there because to me, it actually fuels the macroalgae that's down below. So of course, like this tree has taken up all this nutrients and most of them or some of them are actually bound up in that, that dead leaf. And so when it falls into the water, especially in the wild, it's essentially creating like a fertilizer or the it's next layer it. of substrate. Yeah. It's yeah. like a, an ever existing cycle. It's returning back into the substrate that the mangrove itself is going to use to grow um, and continue to grow up. So I, certain systems I do it, certain systems I don't. It really depends on the um, specific uh, outcome that I would like for that, that system. No, there's one thing that you prodded me on. <laughs> it was scary for me is my beloved little mangrove propagals that I had for like two years. You're like, it's time to trim them, Scott. Cut them down. Gotta and cut them. It was a leap of a leap of faith. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to listen to Tyler. And I did. And, I, and, it, and it makes a branchier, nicer looking little tree. Um, can you talk, maybe give some tips on, on trimming your mangroves, like when to do it and the rationale behind it and technique? Sure. Yeah. So I treat my mangrove trees kind of like you would treat a bonsai tree. Um, So as mangroves are growing, you'll see that they kind of alternate their leaves. And so you'll have a pair and then they'll flip 90 degrees and you'll have a pair the other 90 degrees. And so what I do is really, to be honest, when uh, a young mangrove propagule is growing, it typically grows straight up. It's going to keep growing straight up because in the wild, the one thing that it's doing is competing for light. And typically it is not the tallest tree around. And so it's trying to grow as far up as possible in your home aquarium. That's really not an option like that. There's no, there's no issue whatsoever. It's probably right. the tallest thing that you have around there. Right. So when, when I look at it as about the six month mark, if I start seeing good root growth and I start seeing say that there, the tree is actually sort of putting out the, um, the leaves consistently, right? Mm-hmm. I know we talked about roots earlier. I like to not cut my trees, the tops of the trees until the roots are really firmly planted into the substrate because what we're doing by chopping the leaves up top, we're actually starting to create a canopy. And if that root layer is not you know, really well established, your tree is going to fall over. You're just going to have a lot of issues as it's starting to grow outward. Right. So as for the technique that I use, 
Um, every new branch or pair of leaves actually comes from just above a, a leaf that's growing. And so if you want to grow branches, you can chop just above a pair of leaves and you'll get two branches growing in the same direction that pair of leaves is below it. And so you can do that by alternating, you know, um, which direction you would like the, the branches to grow, mm -hmm. or you can then take um, some, I think it's copper wire. I might use aluminum. It might be like copper colored aluminum wire. Mm -hmm. And I'll actually wire the branches like you would a bonsai tree. I know there's like great tutorials out there on how to actually wire bonsai branches. I am not an expert in that sense. I have actually broken <laughs> mangrove branches yeah, before. So gutsy. I'll say use caution with it. Um, but that allows me to sort of create this canopy. So I actually have a tree that I started. Um, it was the first tree that I, a mangrove tree that I put in here. It's about three years old. Mm -hmm. And it has every bit of, I would say, looks like 12, maybe 12 branches. Um, and it's consistently growing out. And what I've been doing is just every time a, that, you know, branch sort of extends out and gets, you know, three or four pairs of leaves, I'll just start cutting that, that end node off. And then from there, I'll get two more branches that keep branching out. That and that's really set. how you create that, that dense canopy. Yeah, what a great um, yeah. Otherwise you'll get, you'll just get one giant spindly tree going straight up, which is why I told you, you had to cut. Right. <laughs> I waited too long. See that, that, that's a funny thing because I was just, I've always been like, I love them so much. I was so afraid to cut them. I was like, I do not want, it was almost too late because I had these ridiculously long woody kind of like, like main trunk and very few branches. And it was like only when I started cutting them, thank God it wasn't too late. They started you know, branching out, like you said, but it's that leap of faith you have to take, you know, you work so hard to get it to go. And you're thinking, ah, do I, am I going to hurt it? It's just like cutting a garden, you know, any tree in the garden or cutting a coral or whatever, you know, you don't want to necessarily do it at first. Then you do it and you realize, oh, this is beneficial. Yeah. I, um, so to kind of go onto that, it's definitely a leap of faith. So there was an individual that I met on Instagram. Um, he grew mangroves. They were incredible. And, but he, sort of waited too long. Right. And so mm -hmm. he reached out to me and he goes, what, what, what can I do? And I said, to be honest, if I were you, how's your root growth looking? And he said, root growth looks great. I said, start over, chop them all the way back, Yep. cut them back and start over. And so he was like, are you sure? And I was like, one of my mangroves, my cat literally ate it, like ate the mangrove, <laughs> right? Literally just back to the tree. And wow. I was like, man, this thing's gone. Like it's a goner. And about uh, six months later, it grew back. I mean, now it has massive branches. It actually grew in a pretty really weird um, way. But going back to the individual, initially he cut them back. It looked like they sort of died back and I felt terrible. I was like, Oh my gosh, I just <laughs> gave this guy advice, right? His trees and now they're dead. Right. And so I felt bad. I sent him some more propagules. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Here you go. Here's some new ones to start fresh. I said, but I want, but on one condition, do not take those out. I want you to wait like another month and let's just see what happens. And so he got the new mangroves in. He tied them actually to the original mangroves that he cut back in there. And about a week ago, he sent me a picture and he goes, I will be damned. There's literally leaves coming out of these, these mangroves that he thought were dead. Cool. <laughs> they're, yeah, well, they're growing back and I, it just shows that nature is incredible it's, when it, it is resilient how it, how it survives yeah it is and, and i have to tell you i did it to one based on your advice i cut it all the way down to the to the 
you know, to the growth. I don't know you even call it the growth tip or whatever. And it grew back. Yeah, it took a while. It looked weird, but it had it like, like you had indicated to, to this person. You told you asked me the same question. Does it have a healthy root system? I said, yep, you should cut it. And yeah, it works. So there's some that's the beauty of mangroves. I don't know what it is. I, I mean, you probably feel the same. I feel emotionally attached to the mangroves like I would a fish or an animal. There's something very. I don't know. These are my children. They're my kids. Yeah. It's weird how I feel to those about those plants. Yeah. To be honest, I think I'd be more devastated if something happens to my mangroves than something else that happens in my tank. I I mean, (laughs) as much as I want to like, you know, I of course care for my animals and everything in my animals because corals are considered animals, but you can always get a fish. Yeah. The mangroves to me that it's, it's an investment of time. Yes. And so you put so much into them and you want them to succeed just as much. So I, I get your restriction when I, when I told you to cut it, I, yeah, I understand. I was That's, really, it was emotional. It was like, you know, it's cutting your kids hair or something, you know, it, yep. it was, it was rough, but it works. Um, you know, and, and then you hit it on the head. Mangroves are this like investment of time and energy and love and passion. And when they, because it takes a lot, I mean, it, takes time for them to establish when they finally get established it's super satisfying i think more than almost anything i've ever kept more than any other aquarium plant or uh, even more than like almost any coral i've ever kept the mangroves just have always there's something very satisfying about them when they you see it blossom into a tree uh it's just a cool cool thing so I think a lot of people's misconceptions they see the trees that i have um uh, you know pictures of them and they're like you know, how do I get that? <laughs> well, wait about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and takes and you'll have time. something like this. I mean, I have, I have mangroves here that are every bit of 10 years old. I have some yeah. that are, are going on for maybe five years. I have some that are, you know, uh, a couple years old. I mean, really to be honest, when you get that mangrove propagule, that, that tree's already about a year old when yeah. you, you get it. And so for me, um, it is a it's a labor of time, a labor of love to to really let that you know that tree grow. And to be honest, the the pinnacle moment I think I've I've had by keeping these is I actually have prop roots. I have a prop root that is every bit of about three foot long. That's it awesome. is the most impressive thing. That is and, so cool. And now it's actually um, I have a rock at the front of my my peninsula style tank, and this mm-hmm. prop root has finally hit this rock, and it's actually because it's hit it, it's now forking out and pushing this prop root up. Like That's I'm pretty awesome. sure in the next year, this prop root will be out of the top of the tank. That's super um, cool. Which is the coolest so thing ever. Cool. I mean, yeah, that's exactly what, what you see wants. in one. Yeah. It's so cool. And you know, the other thing too, is these propagals are tough. I think people have to realize I, my favorite story about my, one of the first mangroves I've ever had, um, I'm name dropping, but it's it's true story. I was I was down visiting uh, Tony Vargas and mm-hmm. Julian Sprung, and Julian and Tony said like they in Florida, and I said let's let's go collect near. Uh, we went to Key, uh, what was the place called? Key Biscayne, Biscayne Bay, Key Biscayne, right up near Miami, near Julian's, okay. not far from Julian's house. Let's go play in the mangroves, we'll collect some stuff, whatever. Uh, you're allowed to collect the the loose propagals. You can't collect the plants, obviously. And I remember we, you know, we grabbed a few. It was just more fun just walking around while the tide was going out and just checking out all the life among the roots. And I grabbed when I, I was wearing my like board shorts and I stuck it in the back pocket. One of these little, a little propagal that I thought was really cool. I'm like, this is a tiny one. I forgot I had it. And I remember I, I flew home a few days later 
a few weeks later, I finally got around to, you know, to, to washing my board shorts. I'm like, oh, crap. And I open them up. I'm like, oh, there's something in them. I'm like, oh, crap. I had that propagol was in there. So it sat in a dark pocket for about three weeks. And I'm like, oh, is it going to die? It wasn't shriveled up or anything. I, I'm like, put it in water, you know, security. And lo and behold, it sprouted. And, and I still have this plant. Oh it's my, my gosh, oldest incredible. one. It's my oldest one. I still have it. Yeah. It's it's been with me in, in two different houses that I've owned. It's it's been around and it's I still have it. And and that's kind of cool. I uh they they are remarkably resilient. I I mean in in propagal form particularly, but the plant can be tough and challenging, but boy, there there there's something about them, you know. Yeah, and I'll say so I I have a little trick that I do, especially if you're placing a, a propagule in salt water. If you get in a propagule with some roots and they're broken when you when you bring them in, my favorite tool actually is just cut that root off and super glue the end, right? You're essentially capping off mm-hmm. the root. All right. And that allows the the mangrove, the red mangrove to be able to continue its sort of um, pressure system if you're placing it into um, a saltwater system. So I've done it in the past. Um, I've actually broken my giant prop root and immediately oh. freaked out. Oh, I um, yeah. And and went and grabbed some some super glue and just simple old super glue, super glued it, and uh, you know it, it'll cover over the the, the root. Will, you know, of course, yeah, it'll grow over like you would any other tree would. It'll grow over that you know that wound and continue to grow and and thrive. But that's definitely my tip if if anyone is getting any mangroves in the mail um, and they see that the roots are broken prior to putting it into a saltwater system, definitely check your roots and use some super glue to, to cap off any broken now, roots. I actually think it, it based on my, my experience and, and now hearing yours, I think it, it, again, it's, it's easier. I'm always happy when I get propagals that don't have any roots because I agree. I, I, I you don't want to damage those roots and, and people, their natural tendency is to shove it into the substrate. And it's like, that's how you damage it. Instead of just lashing it to an acrylic rod or something like you suggest and let it find the substrate, uh, it, the inclinations to push them in and you damage the root and you can kill the plant. And it's, mm, I, I, I'm always trying to find uh, propagals with no roots or very minimal roots. I, I think that's a better way to go. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I wanted to, I, we t- spent a lot of time talking about mangroves, which is like the big focus, but your aquarium is kind of cool because you have mangroves and then you have macroalgae in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is another area where I think people coming over from freshwater would have a lot of fun because they already, many of these people already have the talent to grow aquarium pla- aquarium plants. Saltwater tanks, marine algae aren't that much different. I know seagrasses I've talked about before. Uh, a little bit different, but um, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on macroalgae and kind of what what's going on in the world of macroalgae, marine macroalgae in, in aquariums. Yeah, no, I think to be honest, macroalgae to me reminds me more like a freshwater plant. I know <laughs> that they're not, but right. um, th- they remind me in the same sort of care requirements that I would be if I was trying to keep any type of like planted tank, whether it's a low tech or a high tech, there's different macroalgae that require lower light, higher light, different types of um, trace elements or specific types of major minor elements, very similar to how you would dose like fertilizer or, you know, iron or things like that, you know, in a freshwater tank. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the, the great benefits I saw was not only 
can I bring sort of the concepts that I've understood for many years of freshwater tank, but I can utilize these macroalgae as sort of a natural filter, right? So we kind of go back to what I was saying with my, my fishbowl per se. Yep. The macroalgae itself is sort of the way that I can keep fish in there and they can, you know, when they, you, you know, you, you know, eat food and dispose of the waste or whatever, then the macroalgae utilizes the, the nutrients from that. And you can kind of keep that cycle going. So it allows me to not have to worry too much about um, the nutrient, uh, I guess, uptake or needing to have say like a, a skimmer or something to export that nutrient. Right. All right. I have to do is, I can go in there, the trim, trim some of the macroalgae, and then there you go. You've, you've essentially exported the nutrients that we're building up in the aquarium. Exactly. It's, it's like the so-called algae reactors that are all the rage right now, which I always just I laugh at that. I mean, I get the idea, but I'm thinking, gosh, if more people would just do a macroalgae tank, uh, well, that's a refugium, basically, to a lot of people. You know, that's, that's a, the idea of having a separate aquarium, a culture, this stuff. But... Macroalgae are excellent nutrient export mechanisms, and that's what's so cool. Yeah, they uh, really are. And I, and I will say there's definitely specific ones that are better than others. Oh, sure. So you, you have to look at um, is your goal uh, of the macroalgae to export, or is the goal of the macroalgae to be a part of the overall aesthetic yeah, of the actual them. tank itself? Yeah. I mean, of course, ultimately, they all utilize them. Some just utilize more or 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 take up more nutrients quicker than others. Right. And some, some are calcareous, like, for example, like, um, uh, not the clerpa, I'm thinking of, um, oh, I'm so I have tennis, Halamida. Uh, Halamida. Yes. Yeah, so, yep. Like Halamida, calcareous macroalgae. They'll, they'll take your alkaline, your, your calcium, right? Suck it right up. And they'll compete against corals. Do you have a good group? Yep, I just started dosing calcwasser to actually keep up with it because, um, when I left for a work trip, I thought I had my dosing set up properly. I'm using mm-hmm. small for reef, which is like oh, a one calcium part. formate. Yeah. Calcium formate. Yep. And so I was like, ah, this should be good. And then when I got back, my alkalinity had dropped from 8.5 to about 4.2. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so a, lot over, of, a lot of demand there. <laughs> yeah. Over about a week and a half time period, I essentially had gone through that much alkalinity buffer. Um, but you can tell, I mean, the halomita is just growing it like crazy. Sucks it up. Yeah. It, it's, it's an amazing macroalgae too. To me, that's one of my favorites because it's, it's like a little independent little plant. That's what I love about it. It has those little roots and, um, very interesting one. What, let's talk about dosing too, because since we're, we're on the, the subject of dosing and, and, and feeding a lot of freshwater people can relate to this. And those of mm-hmm. us in, in the reef world, we are lately, a lot of us use, dosing pumps because it just makes the job easier for dosing major and minor trace elements. But you're talking about, uh, in this case, calcium for reasons that we've already made clear. What other things are you dosing? And, um, you, you know, what, what, how did you get that dialed in and what dosing okay. system are you using? Oh gosh. All right. So I, I have, um, a couple of dosing systems. Um, originally I was, I started off with the Camor, mm-hmm. um, just the single head dosers. And so mm-hmm. as I sort of added more items on to my dosing regimen, I would just add more single heads. You can kind of daisy chain them together. Right. Um, currently now, because I, I have a controller, I'm using the G- GHL doser oh, um, because yes. it's paired up with my uh, aquarium controller. So I'm able to 
um, be able to see dosings happening while I'm away, uh, adjust dosing if necessary uh, while I'm not at the um, at home. But for what I'm actually dosing myself, uh, one of the key ones that I'm using is actually um, Easy Boosters Phytoplankton. Um, I can set it up on a dosing pump. Mm-hmm. I can dose it um, at daytime and nighttime, so that way I can hit all the different types of filter feeders or, or corals that eat at different times of the day. Mm-hmm. I think phytoplankton is a very beneficial sort of additive to any type of reef tank. Um, and then for the macroalgae themselves, I'm dosing Brightwell's Neonitro, the Neophos, um, not so much in the Neophos, that, that depends on how the levels are at. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly Neonitro. A lot of times nitrates are taken um, taken out of the system pretty quickly, especially on With the plants, type yeah. of... Yep. Yeah. This is the type of plant or, or, mac, or macroalgae. And then um, Chato Grow, which is a sort of uh, fertilizer. You can think of it like uh, your typical fertilizer. I actually... For, like iron-based or... Yeah. Um, it's actually... It has iron in it, but it's not much. It's like a... I think it, if I read remember correctly on the bottle, it only has like 0.1% per oh, so the dosing. Minor. It's what? mostly like other ones like manganese, potassium, things like that. And then gotcha. I'll dose Ferion, which is like the chelated iron, I believe it's chelated. Oh, gotcha. But How did you determine your dosing regimen? I mean, do you do it by testing or did you just kind of like use manufacturer's recommendation to start and then kind of look at the growth of your, uh, yeah, your, your yeah, what was your, mostly, you mostly I looked at the manufacturing sort of recommendation, but then <laughs> I trust the manufacturer's recommendation, and then I go about half of what they recommend. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because yeah, they're trying so, to sell product, and you're trying to grow a plant without having an algae bloom, right? Yes. Yeah. So I look at what the manufacturer says, and I divide that by two, and then I go, okay, let's start with that, and then I do have dosing um, or like testing kits for for that. I don't think anyone should be dosing anything without testing. Yes. I think to be able to dial it in properly, you got to know what you should be testing. Yeah. You should be testing to make sure because a lot of these are super concentrated and so you can really overdo it really quickly. And, and Um, this, and this is nothing new that freshwater plant people, you know, don't know. I mean, they're, they're dope. The high tech so-called high tech planted tank. It's every bit as complicated as a reef tank. I'm just surprised that automated. Sometimes it's more. It is. I'm surprised that automated dosing systems like we use in the reef side are not popular with the freshwater people yet, or they're just starting I, to be. I think me. they are. I definitely are they have started seeing more um, high-end plants. I, I do follow quite a bit of mm-hmm. freshwater aquascapers. And they're starting to use them now? because there's some They are starting system. to use them. Yeah. I, I definitely say it. I wish that when I was doing freshwater planted tanks, oh, that yeah. the dosing pumps were more readily available. It would allow me to to um, step away from a tank, right? My, yeah. my whole thought with setting up an aquarium, it, it really shouldn't take over my life, right? Exactly. I want to enjoy it. So if there's any way that I have the funds to sort of automate anything, I'm going to automate it so that way I can minimize the amount of like actual work that I have to do. Yeah. Um, you, you're not a slave to the tank. You're, you And you do those things to maximize your enjoyment of the tank and the ability to get away from it if you need to. I think that's a distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, um, that's really what I hope the future brings for the freshwater folks. It allows them to sort of create these incredible tanks, but not have to 
put all that labor into it because uh, it's a lot enjoy them more it is that estimative yeah. index stuff it's like that's a lot i mean that's harder than any reef tank dosing that i've ever done i mean uh, it's impressive what they do but i think some of these dosers i use the um the red sea reef dose which i, I love it it's so easy it's a good use. doser it's a really good doser it's it's very reliable very accurate it's app based so i like it um and it's made you know dosing two-part and and uh, magnesium easy in, in the reef tank but um you know there's nothing wrong with just you don't have to have a doser i mean i don't want to scare people away from no this no. stuff by saying you have to have all this tech you know i think you know you were saying you did you're doing this because it makes your life easier when you travel or whatever uh and yep. the precision is nice and you know what other equipment do you use now i, I do you use a protein skimmer or um no anything okay good you, there's no need really for a no. tank like yours it just it's not necessary for the size of tank a water change will really do anything that needs like to resets be. yeah yep. so for me like in my fishbowl tank with the big giant mangroves, I did initially start off with a canister filter. It ironically flooded my apartment and actually oh, the God. apartment below me. Oh no. So that kind of uh. mixed that one. So I actually pulled the canister filter off it and then saw that the tank was progressing well without it. So I was like, mm -hmm. well, there's no need for it. So the only thing that's in there is two MP10s, which are essentially just wave makers, and then a heater. Um, oh, actually, sorry. There's two MP10s. Now I have an additional um, JBO that I'm using for a wave function because mm -hmm. I love seeing the Gorgonians wave back. Yeah, and, and the current. Yeah. Yep. Nice. And then a heater. And that's it. That's that's all it is. The Simple. biological filtration is in the rock and the corals. The chemical now is part of the, um, you know, hang on back with a little bit of carbon in there. And mechanical, I don't really do anything for mechanical. For me, I think anything related to mechanical, I'll either siphon out when it comes to the water change or mm -hmm. it'll just be reused for say fertilizer for the mangroves or any of the macroalgaes that are in there. Yeah. It's, it's a, such a refreshing approach. I, um, I, in fact, I was going to ask you in terms of maintenance, because I know people are going to ask, like, what would you say, what is your typical maintenance routine on a, I don't know, weekly, monthly, daily basis? What, what do you, what do you do? So I'd say daily, um, I usually come home and I'll, I'll scrape the glass. So I do have, I tend to run a little bit higher nitrate. So I will get a little bit of that algae film mm -hmm. growing on the glass. That so light green. I, yeah. That light green. Yeah. So I just mm -hmm. usually scrape that away. Um, every two weeks I do a water change of five gallons. Mm -hmm. um, so nothing too crazy. Nope. Um, and then really, to be honest, that's about it. So cool. that's, that's my maintenance, but that's, 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 that's beautiful. And, and then again, that's the beauty of an ecologically diverse aquarium, reef, freshwater, whatever your maintenance is actually pretty easy because the organisms within the aquarium are utilizing a lot of the things that you're trying to export by other means. So doing a water change is probably one of the best and simplest thing you seeing things you can do. And yeah. you have a tank and filled I, with coral too. So, you know, wow. And I'll, I'll caveat this. I, yeah don't have a heavily stocked fish population mm -hmm. i think a lot of people go into this especially from the freshwater side and they see that you know they can put in a bunch of tetras right you know right put in a, a massive amount of tetras in my saltwater tanks i think that tank has four fish in there a pair of clowns a goby and then a geometric pygmy hawkfish mm -hmm. that's it there's four fish in there that's it and to me that allows me to sort of maintain that sort of um, regulation of just doing every two week water changes right now in my other system um, which i've sort of nicknamed the driftwood system which i would like to get into actually because oh, i think your users that. would love that yeah um 
I do have more fish in there, but it does have a sump. And so I can, it has a little bit larger of a water volume. So it allows me to sort of do um, a little bit more fish, but mm -hmm. yeah. So that system um, is actually my sort of um, play towards utilizing freshwater aquascaping materials in a saltwater setup. Um, nice. I, I have been sort of, it's been an, an idea in the back of my head for, for sort of years, right? You know, we try to emulate these great prop roots um, from mangroves, um, but it takes years for that to come around. Right. And my thought was I saw this pine manzanita wood at one of my um, fish stores and I was like, you know what, let's try this out. So I created this little pine manzanita like root structure, some zip ties, very much similarly using a lot of the techniques you use as a freshwater, some super glue and, you know, a little wads of um, filter floss to mm -hmm. sort of bind them together, some zip ties that you can kind of tuck and hide away. And uh, I planted that into my saltwater system. And from there, I'm utilizing mangrove propagules instead of attaching them to the clear acrylic rods, I'm actually just tucking them into little sections of this root structure, this, nice. this pine manzanita root structure. And the whole concept is in the wild, you have hurricanes, hurricanes knock over big giant trees, and this is the new growth that's coming. Yep. <laughs> so it's, it's essentially created this entire little ecosystem around this little root cluster. And right now in there, I have a little group of um, just silver, uh, I think they're like short fin mollies, but uh -huh. it's really cool to see this group of like six or seven fish just shoaling around That's cool. these roots. That's super the, cool. They're not like super and, colorful fish, but it's something no, but... you find it from the freshwater side exactly and did, did you ever see my my brackish water tank that i had a few years ago where i did something very similar i had mangrove actual mangrove wood mangrove roots yeah, yeah and i think that's I, where i got the idea yeah, from and, and, and it was one of my favorite tanks i've ever done it's the same thing mixing the living elements with the the root it, it kind of breaks my heart because i had a chance uh, what what happened was i was able to get mangrove branches from a guy that was uh, he, he reached out to me this is years ago in honolulu where in Hawaii, the mangroves are invasive. They're considered mm -hmm. a pest. So the city of, of Honolulu was cutting these things down because they're invading the natural waterways. I mean, it that's, breaks your heart to think about it, but right. they, they were cutting them down and, and they were just burning the wood or offering it for firewood or whatever. And so he was collecting it and he's like, hey, uh, maybe you'd be interested in this really cool looking stuff. And I bought as much as I could at the time. And he, he had a little cottage industry. As soon as they were cutting it down, he'd go collect it and send them out to me. Um, unfortunately, they're not doing that program anymore. I think they've successfully eradicated for the, the bulk of what they wanted. Um, but we were able to get a ton of, not a ton, but I mean, a very substantial amount of this mangrove wood, which is basically pretty much gone now. And we were able to create these kind of tanks. And I, I wish I had access to that again, because I love your idea of, sort of creating a little version of of that and that would be a good entree to brackish or in your case you know marine yeah um, it's a, it's a full saltwater tank i mean yeah with, i love that with a lot of of driftwood and um i think for for a beginner hobbyist i don't know if i would recommend that so much because there is a lot of the challenge aspects to yeah. it yeah so that's yeah. partly why i'm dosing the kelp wasser it's to help raise that ph so that way the ph um, from the acidifying driftwood um, as the tannins do leach into the water column, not a ton, but they, you know, they do over time as it breaks down, um, doesn't cause too much of an issue with the corals and coral skeleton and even the halimida, which is the, you know, calcium-based macroalgae and its growth patterns. 
And so between both using Kalkwasser to raise the pH to get it above, you know, to a typical reef tank um, level, which is, you know, around your 8.2, 8.3 range. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also using carbon. So actively removing that tannic acid, that yellowing of the water with, right. through just carbon, um, just uh, and, and getting that out. And right now, so far, it's been successfully growing um, uh, quite a few, quite a few uh, corals. And the only thing that I'm, I'm consistently running into is a little bit of hair algae, but um, well, with it's a anything in environment. A, yeah. yeah, with anything with high nutrients, you're going to have excess sort of um, uh, nutrients in the water where things are going to take take hold of it and use it. I, I think that that's an important uh, an important point, and I think also. Oh, I just wanted to mention for those because some people will probably ask that aren't familiar with it. Kalkwasser, it's a German word, basically means lime water or calcium hydroxide. It's a saturated solution of calcium hydroxide. Um, and we use that a lot in, or it used to be much more popular, but it's sort of becoming popular again, um, mm-hmm. for, uh, raising the pH, uh, in, um, in reef keeping. So it's something you hear a lot and it's a simple and, and really fun way of doing it too. Cause you really get to work with your tank or you, do you drip it in or do you add it manually? I drip it. Yeah. I have it yeah. set up on a doser. I, I drip it at night so far. Actually, I it just pH started up. it. So. It's, it's been like the last three days I've been sort of monitoring, testing, and then tweaking the amount of dosing that I'm doing over that 12 hour night period when the lights are off. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that keeps you busy. What, um, speaking of, speaking of corals and dosing, uh, do you, you maintain like Gorgonians and soft corals in this tank? What, what, yeah, what mostly. are ones that, what are ones that you keep or recommend for somebody wanting to foray into this kind of little ecosystem that you created? What would, what would you recommend? Ooh, um, so I think if you were going to emulate uh, the sort of no filter tank and you were kind of going after the Caribbean, I would definitely say um, a lot of Gorgonians. I think you can find various photosynthetics, meaning that they don't have to worry about being fed constantly. You'll, you'll see in the reef hobby that there is non-photosynthetic corals um, typically found at de- deeper depths, but we have photosynthetic Gorgonians that uh, you can just grow by light um, and you can get a lot of different variations of them. I think that's a really cool aspect of it. Yeah. I think an underappreciated coral in the hobby. For sure. And then for my Indonesian sort of inspired one with the driftwood, I've been keeping a lot of simularias. So like finger yeah. leathers, um, you have, I have the sarcophagian elegans. I actually have. How big um, is that tank? I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, just, uh, four, the, the Indonesian 42. One. It's the same exact. Oh, the same type. Okay. It's okay. literally the same exact tank, except for this one. I was smart enough to put a sump on it to at least move a lot of the equipment down, down below. So you don't have it. Yeah, um, you need the room for those cor- those simularia get big. Yeah. They do get big. So yeah. I, I, I do have um, three different variations of simularia. Two that actually are pulsing, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. Oh, yeah. Super you don't cool see that thing. very often. Yeah. And then there's this other coral that I haven't really identified yet, but I, I think I've seen it online as gone as like asparagus coral. It's like not super common. I, I've seen it in some dive oh, photos. Um, yeah. And it's I, also, it's also like a, it almost looks like a, um, a Gorgonian sort of, right? No, it's, no. It's almost kind of like um, the, um, Oh gosh, not like the Koji Wade um, Nephthias. They, they almost look oh, like right, Nephthias, right? But but it's it's almost like this lightish pink sort of brown color, and they do have the sclerites that. Oh, know, interesting. So it is a coral. Yeah. It is a yeah. coral, um, mm. but 
it's weird. I'll have to send you a picture. Yeah, of it. I want to see that. It's really interesting. It's it's a strange one that I picked up, um, and I think it it Is reminds it me of this. It's it's hardy. Yeah, it, it, there's no like hard skeleton in the inside. It's just like uh, it's it, if you look at it, you'd be like, oh, it kind of looks like a nephia, but not really. Huh. So, um, I've seen a couple photos that I think look like it from dive photos in Indonesia, and they were kind of being called as like asparagus coral which doesn't really help anything. No, no, that's um, like, yeah. That's... So I'm still trying to sort of ID this one. I do have a good friend who's um, an incredible ID artist. Oh, um, that's out important. In California. Yeah, he, he works for the Aquarium of the Pacific. And oh, so he actually maintains, yep, their big, giant, massive, like 30-year-old reef tank. So I, oh, yeah. I usually send him a bunch of pictures of my... What is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's cool. So, so again, combination of soft corals, gorgonians, um, mangroves. It's pretty formidable. That's a pretty cool thing. Do you do you have any uh, like polyp type corals, like um, um, you know, like I guess like like yellow yellow polyps or green star polyps or clove polyps or anything like that? that so I have that? some. Um, uh, what do they call it? Like uh, blue suspicularia. Oh no, yeah, that's yeah, suspicularia. It's um... oh efflatonaria. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then um, I have like a, um, they call it Anthelia, waving hand. Anthelia. I love, I love Anthelia. That's one of my favorite. Yep. Soft so corals. that's like another really easy coral. And then I guess um, I have a, um, a yellow branching parietes that I'm growing. That's um, cool. I think it's that's an cool. ORA one. That, uh, that's Party. the only like real stony coral that I have. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a really cool, um, just giving essentially as much alkalinity and calcium that the halomita doesn't take up goes to <laughs> it's grabbing what it can yep yeah yeah but i i tend to stay away from a lot of the the stony corals um not in the sense of like um i, I can't keep them it's more of the factor of like they need a little bit more added care for for me with being able to travel and, and not have to really worry about my tanks when i'm gone soft corals for me is is the easiest way to to go about it they they're very hardy they mm -hmm. can they don't have to worry about little ebbs and flows and, no. and, 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 you know, the overall chemistry, but uh, yeah. So I, I typically stated that, um, but I think my, my pride and joy stony coral that I have is blue Ridge coral. Oh, heliopora. Uh, wow. Yes. Heliopora. You don't yep. see those so too much anymore. You don't see no, you don't. those. That's a cool coral. Yep. So that's been my little pride and joy. I have been growing that one for the last year and it is a slow grower. I'll tell you that. Oh, it's really <laughs> slow. And you know, is yours the one that's like tan on the outside and then, it's, or does it actually have blue? Because usually the, the blue Ridge coral, it's when you, when you break a piece off, it's blue inside and tan on the outside. Is yours actually, it's actually blue. It mine's almost like a purplish color. Oh, it's wow. Like a purplish color wow. with like a little bit of like, um, I think the polyps are like kind of purple, but yeah, if you break it open, you'll definitely see the blue on the inside. Yeah. It's an interesting coral. That's cool. So what's your favorite of your macroalgae that you keep? I'm bouncing Ooh. around. I know, but you no, had no, you're good. Me. So, uh, Oh gosh, that is hard. Um, <laughs> I'll actually go with not a macroalgae, but a seagrass. Uh, so I have tell me, tell me or hollow do it. Yes. Yeah, uh, yep. my favorites. You know, I love seagrass. I used to grow yeah. seagrass quite a bit. Like, I regret that I stopped doing that. And back in my uni corals days, we had a huge raceway, and I had a little section where I grew seagrasses. And uh, I went on a trip one day, and the people that were taking care of, uh, taking care of that section made some boo boos, and they killed off my seagrasses, and I was not happy. 
and I have not been you able need to, to get start them growing since. some more. I would to... love to do that. I would love to propagate. I I had it down. I was doing it in my house in the backyard. I had like a one of those little plastic, you know, uh, kettle troughs. I like kettle oh, yeah, trough. Yeah. One of those rubber made kettle troughs, and I I had it down. I grew them in like little. Um, I don't even know why I grew them that way. Just for the fun of it, because I had my own seagrass tank. But I grew it uh, halodule and thalassia. They're my two favorites. Um, I tried paddle grass, which is, I forgot what the scientific name of that stuff is. That wasn't as hardy, but yeah, I think seagrass would be so popular right now. I, I would love to get back into that, do a, sea, a proper seagrass tank again. Um, yeah, you would, you would, you would kill it. You would do so well with that. You, you would love it. So I have a little bit of seagrass. I have a little bit and it's doing well, Oh, uh, cool! but I definitely want to get some more, um, well, some more variations. Um, yeah, I, I, I have like the, I guess, um, trying to remember the scientific names of them. Turtle grass, shoal grass. Turtle grass, shoal, yeah. Uh, Halodule, which is shoal grass, and turtle grass is thalassia, and then there's one other, um, syringodium, I think. I, I have a hookup, a, a friend that does go, uh, he does have a, he's like a partner in a coral propagation importation firm down in, uh, in, um, and so I can't really say what country because I guess I'm, he's, he's kind of doing it. Uh, yeah. Still trying to establish his business before he starts going crazy with, it. but he told me that he will do his best to try to get me some seagrass. Um, yeah. yeah and he's, he's got to get me that connection. Yeah. And it's beautiful because he's got the permission of the government there to do it. And uh, it's so they're just trying to build up a little system. And I said, no, we've got to bring in seagrass. So yeah, I, that's my goal within the year or so to try to bring in that and you will definitely be on that short list of people that's going to get them because getting seagrasses awesome. into the hands of talented propagators would be the key just like with coral you know it just took yeah. a little while to get established seagrass is kind of the next frontier and marine plants i mean marine macroalgae is having such a moment right now with you and uh, that tiger boy and you know, mitch a few other people playing with it and, uh, it, it's neat to see and there's that guy in japan uh, do you see my yes. Instagram? Extarium, I think is what he goes by. Yep. Is it Extarium? Extarium. Black guy does yeah. some amazing little tanks. People check out this guy's account. Really cool little, almost like experimental little system. So it uses a lot of Calerpa, but it's just such a cool, cool little looking aquariums that he does. Real ecologically diverse. Um, it's fun. I think the, the stuff is getting fun again. Yeah, I, I, I love his setups because They're I think so he owns neat. a store... I think he has a yeah. store of some sort and I think he has collection rights over there in Japan. And yeah. so he goes out and he's able to collect and pretty much set up these like instant ecosystems. And they're yeah. just so cool. Diverse. To watch, yeah. Watch them thrive and see the diversity of like macroalgae in a home aquarium. That's literally coming literally from shore to his. Yeah, he's just like digging. He has videos of him. He put one up a few days ago. He's like digging the sand up, plopping it in the bowl and taking the water and he had some damselfish and some, Gobies. yeah it was really incredible Super cool i, 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 I think love that. dennis dennis tiger boy as, as as he's known on instagram mm -hmm. dennis and i have been good friends and we've talked mm -hmm. about this a while to be honest the way that we saw the macroalgae sort of expanding um and really evolving in the saltwater aquarium side of the hobby was really actually getting the freshwater folks interested. yeah that's the key because they know the how to grow stuff. folks know how to grow this they they understand that aspect and to them that seems like an easier jump into the saltwater side than say setting up a full-fledged you know mixed uh, i agree but it's actually a really cutting edge <laughs> to, to do this kind of stuff like what you're doing is actually a very exciting subspecialty 
uh, and probably every bit as challenging and fun as a reef tank, really, if not more so, more satisfying to me. Um, I look at it as if we're ex- experimenting. And so yeah. it's, it's really cool to be able to push forth and experiment the same way that I'm experimenting with it, different types of, you know, hardscape. It's it, it just, it's unknown. It is unknown and it's, and it's different. And it's, it's nice to see it getting the attention it has. I, I remember being a big macroalgae fan for years and it was just hard to get macroalgae and there wasn't a lot of interest in them except for refugiums, you know, for nutrient export. And it was kind of like one of those little, like, why do you want to get, you know, halaminia and all these kind of interesting macroalgae that people were, botrycladia, all that kind of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. and keep them, actually enjoy them for what they are. And they're, they're actually quite pretty. I, I'm tuning my own horn and it sounds terrible, but like, I think it was 2009, 2010, I did it, I talked, I spoke at MACNA that year and I did my, my talk, my talk was on macroalgae and seagrass. Mm-hmm. And it was cool because a lot of people were interested in it, but just nothing ever came of it. And I unfortunately wasn't in the the industry side at that point where I was able to do anything with it. And then by the time I got to, you know, my unique corals days, we were doing, we were bringing in some macroalgae, but a lot of it was from propagators. So there was some lady in Minnesota that was growing it and we would buy it from her and we couldn't keep the stuff in stock. And this was back in 2013, 2012. So there is a market that it was always kind of an underground thing, just like seahorse people. They have their own world. The macroalgae people have their own world, but it's becoming a little more mainstream in the hobby. And it's really exciting to see that now. And, and yeah. thanks to you guys putting, you know, really exciting images out there every day, people are getting really inspired. And I think you and Dennis have such different approaches too. like his is a more artistic kind of forward approach, at least the way I see it. And yours is a more natural ecosystem kind of approach. Yeah, I can that. I mean, it, I just, it's cool. Yeah, and I was going to say, it shows there's there's more than one way to enjoy this stuff. And again, um, they can both pull in the freshwater people, which obviously we have a huge audience for, um, because they have skills already in those areas. And this just is sort of bringing out what they know. Yeah, no, I mean, they're really the people who are going to advance this side of the saltwater hobby. Um, there's only so many people that I know, you know, really, to be honest, I could probably count all of them on both my hands who actually are, are, that I know that are so passionate about macroalgae. But when, when it comes to seeing the freshwater folks and shoot, I was just at Aquashella in, in, in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you see folks that are setting up, you know, macroalgae displays at these shows, it's so cool to be like, oh my gosh, this is actually evolving and expanding <laughs> yeah. where, you're seeing this technique and this style show up at large events where mass amounts of people are yeah. able to see, learn, and, and, it, and, you know, become interested yeah. in these, in these, in this side of it. So it, it's amazing. And and you guys are doing a hell of a lot of work to, to get that out there. And, you know, it's the same satisfaction I get with the botanical thing. It, it that became a thing. It's become an accepted technique because of the work of a lot of people playing with this stuff and, Suddenly, it's trickling into sort of the side of the mainstream of the freshwater hobby. It's just an, an approach, and it's very satisfying to see that. And it's in a very exciting time in the hobby, both freshwater and you know salt. Between you and and Melanie, I mean, like oh, Melanie, you two, it. You two have really piqued my interest in in a botanical style setup. Um, I knew it. I, I think that would be my next setup. If I were to set up another tank, I, I think it would be a botanical style setup. I've 
uh, I've just fallen in love with your guys' style and, and, and techniques and, and it's the aesthetic so of that you have. It is. Yeah, and that's, it's very different. Well, that's what, this, again, that's the appeal of the macroalgae, yep. uh, the, the, the softies and, the, and the, um, the mangroves. It's that so different than what everybody is doing, yet it appeals to something inside of certain people. You know, there's that natural kind of vibe that people really like. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, it's 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 different, and and I like different. I like yeah. I like trying to forge. You know, I like to go after and try different things that you know maybe a normal hobbyist would wouldn't be interested in, or wouldn't even you know even think to try and take that leap of faith into putting driftwood into a saltwater tank. I mean, the minute I I told like a a very old school reefer <laughs> that I had driftwood in my You're saltwater what? tank. He, he kind of looked at me very puzzled as like, uh, <laughs> why would you do that? Fresh water? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? But that's the beauty is the crossing over of ideas and techniques. All this stuff is, is really starting to happen now. And it's because people are so bold and innovative and because we can share ideas so quickly with social media, good and bad. Mm-hmm. I think that's like, it's in a really an incredible time. I mean, people like you that are doing stuff that was probably not seen as anything close to being, I don't want to use the word mainstream, but just it was, un, it was so different. Now it's like, no, it's just an approach and mm-hmm. you're an avenue, a different avenue for the same thing. And and that's the beauty of the aquarium hobby. It's like really in a good place right now. If people are starting to look over the fence, you know, freshwater people looking at saltwater, saltwater people looking at freshwater, freshwater people looking at other freshwater ideas, etc. So it's just, it's neat to see. And uh, people like you are on the kind of cutting edge. And I, I love that. It's, it's cool. It's, it's a great time. I mean, to be honest, I will say a lot of my inspiration for the tanks that I set up come from dive photos. Mm-hmm. And really, to be honest, freshwater tanks. I'm yeah. looking at them and how they sort of scape their tanks, how they use the hardscape, um, what sort of inert um, stones that I could use, you know, to yeah. create these different environments. Um, you know, I've used lava stone before. I've used actually Hakai River stone. I've yeah. used um, Siru stone. I mean, I've tried a lot of these different sort of um, hardscapes. Um, and, and, and I think it's really, to me, like I get a lot of inspiration from the freshwater folks. And, and I hope that, 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 you know, things that I'm trying hopefully gives inspiration to them to, to come over to the, the, the saltwater side, because I know Absolutely. that that jump that when I made from freshwater to saltwater, I, you know, it was, it was nerve wracking. It's a it very nerve wracking thing when you hear people say, you know, Hey, this is, this is super hard. And, you know, you've got to be really dedicated to it. And I would say, yes, it is. You know, anything that you're trying that's brand new is always going to be difficult no matter what, exactly. because you're starting from square one. Exactly. But there's techniques and concepts that you have learned over the many years of your freshwater hobby that can play an incredible role in saltwater size. And we see it, you know, day in and day out now with a lot of these great freshwater aquascapers that are creating incredible, incredible saltwater tanks Yeah, um, using their their techniques and, and it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a great time to be a part of this hobby and see the evolution that's going on. It is. And, and again, you're right in the thick of it. And I love that. Well, man, uh, Tyler, we probably should wrap this up. I told you, uh, I told you, Oh, 45 minutes. We're way past that now. And two or three tries of this, but getting it to work. And I appreciate everybody that stuck with us when we put this together. Hopefully we'll have all the three little interrupted segments together. If not, this last segment was awesome. And we'll do this again. Yes. 
I'd love to talk to you we'll more. Absolutely do this again. We'll, we'll we'll definitely have more on this because I think this is such a, a fun time to 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 talk about this stuff. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon to uh, to hang out with me here and, and talk this stuff. And um, again, I think it's going to inspire a lot of people. It has inspired a lot of people. It inspires me. And um, just keep doing what you're doing, man. It's 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 really great to see. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. No, I appreciate it. I hopefully, hopefully we can meet one day at a, oh, for at sure. a show in the near future. Hopefully that's on your agenda sometime. Love it is. It chat, is. Catch up, have a drink, and, and oh, really, yeah. really dive into the weeds. Absolutely. We certainly will. And we'll do this again. And again, everybody, thank you so much for listening with us. Tyler, thanks for uh, having us. What's the best place for them to find you? Uh, Instagram or, or do you are you on other forums or... Yeah, Instagram is probably the best place to find me uh, at inland underscore reef. That's I N L A N D underscore R E E F. And then in there, they also have um, a link um, in my bio that goes to a couple YouTube videos that actually do a really good job of um, walking through and breaking down my setups actually throughout the oh, years, cool. too. So I cool. um, have a good friend who's helped me document a lot of the setups, the creation and sort of the evolution of my tanks. So if you're interested in that, um, those videos are also linked in my Instagram page as well. Fantastic. Well, that is great. You guys, everybody out there, thanks again for listening. Tyler, it was great talking to you. We'll do this again soon. And everybody, thank you so much for being part of this little podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of The Tint. That's a wrap.